Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're going to talk all about the second stage of labor, pushing how to push, what positions to push in, the role of your pelvic floor, the role of your abdominals, balancing your pelvic floor, work to do before birth, work to do before pregnancy, during pregnancy, a huge gamut of information, which I'm so excited to share with you. I feel like sometimes we talk a lot about the labor, but not a lot about the actual second stage birthing. So we're going to really dive into that. And I have Chantal Traub as my guest. Chantal and I go way back. We've been kind of interweaving in the birth yoga world the last you know, 15 or 16 years. She and I used to see each other at Iyengar classes at our teacher, Jenny Capular studio. And and then in the birth world, with a lot of mutual friends. Um, she's a mother of two, and she's a certified childbirth educator. She's certified through Lamaze and through the Childbirth Education of Metropolitan New York. She's also a very well-respected doula, and she's the founder of Pushing Power. It's workshops all around New York City about empowering your body and mind for birth. And she has been doing birth work, I think, um, since about 2003, if I'm correct. Oh, and she's also a prenatal and postnatal certified yoga teacher, and she just finished a certification in the Mutu system. So she's got a ton of information to share. So hold on, we'll get to that conversation very soon. Um, Before that, just a shout out that our spring teacher training, our 85-hour training is starting in New York City in about a month. We have a wait list of about five people, so we're full for that. But we opened up registration already for the fall, and it's actually about a third full. So if you're interested, jump into that. And we just got the dates um, settled for going back to Charlotte, North Carolina at Yoga One um, in November and December. So super excited about that. And I also set the dates for relaunching Who's Afraid of the Pregnant Yogi. That's for uh, yoga teachers that may not quite know what to do when a pregnant student comes in and you're terrified of what am I going to do with them. This online uh, course can take you through that. And before we get further, I also wanted to give a special thank you. So if you ever go on to our website, Prenatal Yoga Center on the podcast page, I have a donation button on the side. Um, So we've had people kind enough to leave a donation to help keep the podcast thriving. And the other day I opened up my email and there was a podcast donation from Celia. So I want to say thank you. I appreciate uh, the donation. It was kind, it was thoughtful, and it's something that I, I deeply feel, um, just honored that you thought to do that and give that monetary energy to. And also those that can, please do. And those that can't, maybe you can leave a rating or review on any of the places we are, Stitcher, um, iTunes, all the different places. All right. So we're going to get to Chantal. We're going to take a quick break for a little announcement and then we'll get to Chantal. All right. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chantal, I am so excited to speak with you. I think as you and I were talking before we hit record, we've known each other, what, like 15 or 16 years? <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long, a lifetime. <laughs> 
Yeah. So welcome. Welcome to my little podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you, Deb. I'm so honored to be here and thanks for inviting me. And yes, it's it's exciting because we have we go a long way back. I'm thinking about some of the similar paths that we took um, in terms of education and classes. So yeah, it's, it's and some nice of our friends are the same. So it's yeah. really it's a treat to be able to speak with you because I you know now that I'm out in the suburbs, I just don't get to be involved in the birth world as much. So. It's a little selfish on my part that I get to reach out to people that I want to speak with and continue relationships with and have you on. So yay, this is really exciting. So all right, you have a massive background in the birth world. So we're going to talk a lot about pushing and the second stage. But before we jump into all that, let's just hear a little bit about you and what got you into this whole birth world. Yes. So... um... A lifetime ago, I was working in actually film in art direction and set design out in South Africa and in Southern California. And uh, it was out in Southern California that I got introduced to yoga. And um, as I was getting a little bit bored and burnt out in the film industry, I had that time thought, okay, I don't want to be doing this 10 years from now. And I started taking a pause and practicing a lot of yoga and taking continuing education and then became certified as a yoga teacher. And I came to the East Coast to do a film job and then was going to leave. And I ended up staying because I got invited to teach yoga. And at that time, yoga was not popular at all. It was like a little bit of a best kept secret (laughs) in kind of funky dance studios and word of mouth. And because I had a background in prenatal yoga, I got invited to teach prenatal yoga and then started developing more uh, in prenatal yoga. And it was through some of my students who felt that I helped them get more comfortable and w- helped them feel encouraged, um, asked me if I would help them at their birth and be their doula. And I was, well, what's a doula? <laughs> what's the responsibility of a doula? What's involved? So I decided to take the doula training more to deepen my knowledge and for continuing education. But by the time I completed it, it really, it rung a chord with me that women really needed to be advocated for, especially in the hospital system. And um, it really resonated with me. And by the time I had completed my, you know, six or eight births at the time, I was getting some callbacks because I had connected with some OBs and midwives, and it was one of those curveballs. I feel like it picked me, and and it just kind of snowballed from there. And 16 years later, here you are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you've done a ton see. besides being a doula. You have done two different childbirths uh, education certifications. Yes. So yeah, and you just keep growing, growing, and I really feel like having connected with you years ago and watching your trajectory, it feels like something shifted in the last few years. Is Also because your kids are older and that now you don't have to care for them as much, but something's really shifted in your career. Um, so, yes, I think as, well, I think as, as in anything that one is, th- that one's into, the more one practices it over time, uh, the deeper one goes. And, and I think the more subtle one goes and we start practicing on a more deeper way. And yes, I think as a childbirth educator, I'm sort of fired through Lamar's like you, and then through childbirth educators of metropolitan New York. Um, it, it helps me at births and births, you know, ref- help me with teaching and it kind of encourages me to, you know, observe and reflect and dig deeper. Um, but but what I really found with birth specifically, and as a woman, I, I just would feel that after going to hundreds and hundreds of births, that women were often underprepared for the second stage of labor, where I just felt that it wasn't as intuitive as we imagined it to be, or as I was teaching it to be. And, um, or that women were forcefully pushing, you know, into their faces or into their abdomen or into the perineum and creating unnecessary damage. Um, and then the more I thought about birth and and the pelvic floor, it's like as a childbirth educator and as a doula, how are we not into the pelvic floor and the pelvis? How do are we not teaching about that? How are we not learning about that? And it just felt very intuitive that this was an area 
that really needed to be looked at as explored because generally most babies come through the pelvic floor. I mean, not all. So, And it just affects us. I Even my, as a yoga teacher, some of my older students would share with me um, as they were older that they were experiencing, you know, leaking with sneezing or jumping or pain or discomfort or even a prolapse. And they had had their babies many, many, many years ago. And so I realized that the obstetric events of the past will catch up with you in perimenopause and menopause if it's not addressed. And so why not look at it beforehand more preventatively? And so I just became so passionate about encouraging women and supporting them in a way that they can become more empowered and know themselves better more intuitively and know their own bodies and be able to advocate for themselves uh, more. Oh, you're speaking my language. I literally, my heart's like, yes, I'm so excited to continue this conversation. I, I mean, I'm, you and I, again, we keep pathing, uh, our paths keep crossing and, you know, pelvic floor. For the last, I would say for me, my big push into it was the birth of my son uh, almost eight years ago and the pelvic floor. That's when things really was shining. I'm like, all right, clearly there's a lack of cross communication between those in the birth world and, and the obstetrics and the midwives and the exercise world of what we're doing to the pelvic floor and how they're not communicating of how important it is to have a balanced pelvic floor. So I am so excited we're going to dive into this. So let's start from a clean slate because some people may be listening and we're going to talk about second stage of labor and their only point of of reference might be, you know, TV and movies where people are on their back and they're screaming and legs are swinging in the air. So <laughs> let's take a moment and just explain what is the second stage of labor? Okay. Yes. Um, well, first of all, second stage of labor is when the cervix is completely thinned out and out of the way. So 10 centimeters until the baby is out. Um, and when we look at it, there, when you look at second stage, we have to look at it in different phases. So what does 10 centimeters mean versus 10 centimeters and the urge to push? Um, and so there is to understand that there's a, a passive second stage, meaning that you could be fully dilated without an urge to push or without very strong contractions. And we can go a little bit more into that, but then there's an active participatory second stage where either the mother, the birthing person is feeling strong urge to push, um, or she's having very strong expulsive contractions that she can work with, or you're seeing some of the baby. So some hair of the baby, the baby's beginning to be visible. Um, and so to really be able to differentiate between, between that and, you know, pushing can be a few minutes or a few hours with different women. But if the mom doesn't have the urge to push, then why not wait? I mean, sometimes the contractions will space out and, and give the mom an opportunity to catch up with herself and to allow the baby to completely descend and rotate and get into position really to extend its head to be ready to be born before she'll start feeling those urges. Um, and so that's a great opportunity to, if you have an opportunity to be in water, to get into water or mortar, um, or to rest, or to be in positions that can help encourage the baby to get into the most optimal position before birth. But something else to think about is I, I think that we're not always paying so much attention to because we're often thinking, how can we get the baby to come down? How can we get the baby to get into the most optimal position? But it's not so much about how can we get into the, the baby to do this, but what is it that the baby needs? Because for physiological birth for the mom, the baby also has to go through its own intrinsic reflexes. Um, and how can we be intuitive enough, relaxed enough to be able to respond to what the baby needs? So to understand what the baby has to go through to come down into the pelvis and to rotate and flex and come down and rotate and flex and those movements that it needs to do before it will finally 
you know, come under the pubic bone, extend its head. Um, and so I think coming from that perspective almost allows the mom to connect more to her baby and to her body. And so much, it's not so much a matter of doing, but allowing the baby to do what it needs to do to be able to support that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard a saying years ago, it's the mother's job to dilate and the baby's job to rotate, but they still need to work as a team. Yes, that mom-baby dyad is yeah. already from in utero. Yeah, I love yeah, that. that connection. connection. That, it's like yoga. It's the yoking. It's the already we're in communication and we're working together. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh. When you connect to that, I think it's beautiful. And then it, there's a real flow for postpartum with keeping mom and baby together because you're already together. Mm-hmm. So I think it's more intuitive in that way. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No details. So, what would be some ways to make the second stage? I'm going to put the word easier in quotes because it's not necessarily easy, but maybe more functional and shorter. Hmm. I just want to add though for oh, the sure. for yeah yeah for the second stage. So then as so then yes, there are two phases to second stage. Um and we can talk more about this a little bit later, but then as the baby crowns, it's kind of slightly different as well in terms of what the mom's feeling and with her breath and with her positions. But maybe mm-hmm. we can explore that a little bit later. Yeah, we can go into it now. I can pause okay. on my other questions. So yeah, go for it. Yeah. So so yeah, just so to go back, so Sometimes it could take, you know, a few minutes or a half an hour or up to two hours for them for really for that urge to become strong where the baby's kind of in position, the uterus has brought the baby down. Um, Often the mom will look different or feel different or respond differently or she'll get the strong urge. And if she's not feeling anything, it's generally around, I would say, like plus two-ish where you're seeing some baby before you actively start pushing, start crowning. If the mom does not have an epidural, she will often feel a burning sensation and that would be her cue to yield and to slowly ease the baby out and blow and breathe the baby out. Whereas with the driving down, it's more of a stronger uh, effort Mm -hmm. often. So what do you think, I'm going to go back to that question I had talked about before I interrupted you. Um, what are some of the ways to make second stage more functional and possibly even shorter? Yes. So to take into consideration uh, the positions and the movements that we spend in towards the end of the pregnancy, which will help encourage the baby to come into a more optimal position before you go into labor would be ideal. Um, and then the positions that the mom is in during her labor to encourage the baby uh, to be able to come down into the pelvis and through the pelvis in the most optimal way will help. Things that will make it a little bit more easier are often the strength and the power of the contraction, uh, the position and size of the baby, the size and position um, of of the pelvis, so sorry, the shape and size of the pelvis, they're different sizes pelvises, and um, the mom's pushing positions and then her techniques. So if she can be off the bed and use gravity ahead of time to be able to help drive the baby down would be, you know, helpful. 
um, unless she's needing to rest. And then she could be resting in positions that actually support the baby's positioning. Um, and then there are things to consider that what helps support the hormones of labor? What do, what do we as mammals need to be able to support this process? And as mammals, we, are, we need to be able to feel safe and protected. Um, and so to be able to create uh, an environment that supports that. And I often encourage the partner or the doula to be able to help the mom create that space, to take control of that space. So whether it's, you know, keeping the room dark, lowering the blinds, keeping the curtains closed, um, sound can have a huge effect. Making sure the mom is hydrated and emptying her bladder is helpful. Um, the tone of the room, that when people are speaking in more of a melodious tone, soft tones can be helpful. Um, and and to be supported in a way that supports the oxytocin, because the more that the oxytocin is released, that's going to help with the surges, with the contractions that actually drive the baby down mm -hmm. um, and help with the, the ejection reflex. So... Often as mom gets closer to pushing, tension or fear could build up. And it's actually helpful, I think, to explore fear ahead of time, before labor. There's so much uh, I find that we carry in our fascia, in our pelvic floor, in our pelvises. We tend to carry a lot of tension. We tend to carry a lot of fear, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration. And often our messages, our stories of our past, whether it's cultural or our very early experiences of sexuality, we store in our pelvises. And sometimes it's this tension and fear that can hold us back. And so ideally to explore this before birth, but often if there's a way, if some of these fears come up, whether it's the fear of losing control or a fear of dying or maiden to mother or to be able to address it and, and have that safe space that you feel connected with whoever's in the room mm -hmm. uh, so that you can be able to relax and let go and let the pelvic floor go and also to be able to allow that oxytocin release to kind of help with the uterine contractions to help bring the baby down. Yeah, I did I read a study or where did I hear this from that so when the when there's an adrenaline spike which we know is part of second stage though the pelvic floor reacts by tightening. So if someone is feeling fear or pressure especially if they're heading to that second stage and like okay I know I have a window to push in which doesn't help with you know feeling at ease then the pelvic floor can actually contract and that's not going to help with what we need that springiness of the baby rotating. So I love what you say and back in the years when I was a doula um, and even now I give my students homework. <laughs> They're like, I'm here in yoga and you're giving me homework. Yes. Um, <laughs> I want them awesome. to explore, like you said, their fears, because I learned really early on, it was my fifth birth. And luckily Terry was my mentor. So she helped me, but the woman's um, labor just was really plateauing. And she said, try to dig in to see emotionally what's going on. Again, that's my fifth birth. So I was brand new. And so since then, I learned at the stake of this poor woman's birth that fear, it's not just something that's in our head, it, it, our whole body reacts and it's not oh. going to play a helpful role in the body's birth flow or physiology. So I'm really glad that you brought that up because it, it really can stall things out and stop things. It, it really can. But I think sometimes towards the end of first stage, there is an adrenaline yeah. surge. And that's sometimes helpful but that's because... different than that's, fear. Yes, that's different from fear. That's, that's going to wake the mom up, yeah. get her to a safe place, kind yeah. of get her into position. And often then the labor will space out. We'll get that rest and be thankful phase. And then the surges, the oxytocin will release and bring those uterine contractions back. But yes, absolutely. The, the fear... Is in is in our in our fascia. It's in our pelvis. It's in our body, and that absolutely, I think, 
hold it up. I think that's great that you give that. To I do. To explore. I think it's important. And they look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> and I'm like, but trust me, if you explore it now, I say, go into your closet and pull the skeletons out and explore them because you don't want it coming up in the middle of your first, of you know, any point of your labor and then trying to find some resolution or even support. So yeah, I like that. I, that's one of my, one of my go-tos. Um, can you talk a little bit about the whole purple pushing? Cause I've, I've seen students come back with like the, the capillaries. They tell me like, I had a friend and this was, gosh, her son is almost 18. Um, she was my, actually my very first prenatal student. She dislocated her retina or dis- detached her retina pushing. Um, and she already had pretty bad eyesight. So that (laughs) she ended up having a cesarean, but she pushed for so long. I think it was detached, um, her retina. So can you talk a little bit about, um, besides not wanting to break the capillaries or (laughs) do that to your eyes, um, this whole purple pushing thing and why it may not be the best option and other options and just breathing. Yes. So I want to just go back and say again, when it comes to second stage, that there are two parts, there are two phases to the to, to second stage. There's that latent uh, second stage where the mom isn't necessarily feeling an urge to push or she's not having those strong contractions that she can work with. And so if everything is okay with the mom and with the baby, why not just wait mm-hmm. right, until she's feeling that urge? Um, and, and so purple pushing is, is really what directed pushing in. And there's that big controversy about, you know, directed pushing or spontaneous, spontaneous pushing. And, you know, there are pros and cons certainly with both. So ideally with an instinctive birth, physiological birth, the mom will tune into her own body and do what she's needed to do what she needs to do because she can feel her surges and she can go with it and she can also trust that the contractions are going to come and trust intuitively that the baby is going to come so she doesn't feel rushed. And how can we support that specifically in a hospital setting? So we can loop back about to that. And then more directed pushing, which is the more traditional way to push. And I think it's interesting because it's kind of an old tradition where I think a lot of a lot of the training is that it's the most dangerous time for both mom and baby during second stage. So let's hurry up and just have this baby and here's the safe baby and the safe mom. But, but we, we learn that, that it's detrimental to, to many things, to the baby and to the pelvic floor. And it certainly can waste a lot of energy. And to really um, have these conversations with one's provider ahead of time. So in those questions, when you're asking about what is your episiotomy rate, but what is your pushing style and how long will you allow me to rest before I start pushing or what positions can I push in and what positions are you comfortable catching my baby? And I, I think it's important like as educators to be able to encourage our students not to assume, to ask these questions ahead of time. I know they're uncomfortable questions sometimes, but we're not going to change someone and someone's training and they're not necessarily bad people, they practice according to their style and their comfort levels and to, you know, really know if this is going to be something that you're going to be comfortable with. But so with directed pushing, if the mom's not feeling an urge to push and the baby's really high up, then yes, she's going to exert a lot of energy and a lot of force uh, into the face, which is where purple pushing the name comes from, but also possibly into the abdomen uh, and create more damage to the abdominal walls or forcefully down into the perineum and into, you know, the central tendon and areas there that can really, uh, we see a lot of dysfunction from forceful pushing. Mm -hmm. So, so the question is, and, I, and it's, it's, it's interesting because as a doula, I see it's very, very varied uh, in terms of different hospitals and, and practices. Even at the same hospital, I see providers practice differently. So there are some styles where if you're 10 centimeters and they've checked you, that you need to start pushing. And then there's a time limit. Um, whereas 
there are some practices who will honor that whether you're 10 centimeters, but the baby is either still high up or the baby is not really ready or you don't want to force the baby to rotate, right? To, that puts a lot of pressure on the baby um, and on the pelvic floor to be able to wait until the mom is feeling more urge or until um, you see more baby. But so with directed pushing, the the style is to be able to, they say, take a deep breath in, hold your breath and count to 10. Um, so, I mean, the disadvantages are, you know, clearly what I said, but the advantages are if the baby is in some form of distress or we have to have this baby sooner than later, then it does tend to work really well to bring the baby down. Um, it's just a matter of the different styles in the hospitals. Um, you know, it is efficient for expelling the baby out when there's concern for the baby's life. Um, but I even notice with a lot of providers where they'll be like, okay, take a deep breath in, hold your breath and count for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, because they know, <laughs> <laughs> they know, they know the mom can really, you know, not really hold it that well without gasping for breath. Mm -hmm. You know, ideally you're pushing at the peak of the contraction, even if you are being directed and maybe holding for, you know, four, five, six breaths. Counts, Second, yeah. If you let it go, uh, you know, to be able to hold your breath on someone else's count just doesn't make any sense at all. And when you're pushing, when you don't feel the urge, you can actually lose your own intuitive reflex so that it doesn't necessarily come. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, if it's misdirected, you know, downwards towards the anus or, as I mentioned, to the central tendon, it can possibly, you know, tear in the neck of the cervix or damage in the perineum or and prolapse think about what and, we're doing to those yes. organs yeah all that pushing down yeah um but i like their point again it's really important to have a conversation ahead of time and not just about how long can i push but what position can we push in you know we shouldn't as as you and I are educators and we're with people and we're informing them like, oh, there's so many other options on your back is actually not the most physiologically sound. And so then we're getting people excited about, oh, I could do this standing. I can do this on all fours. I can squat. And if they didn't have this communication with their care provider, they might start to bite butt heads. They might come into their birth and be like, I'm going to squat. And then their care provider would be like, you can push that way, but it's time to crown. I want you on your back. So circling back to expectations of each other, of the care provider and the, the birthing person. I think, it's I think it's really important because, because, you know, what I'm encouraging my classes is the empowerment of the mom, right? So we're working so hard to help her become more intuitive, to trust her body, to make her own choices. And then she arrives in a situation where that power is taken away and it becomes more of a disempowering experience. The suffering postpartum is just tremendous. It just takes a long time, yeah. you know, so to really have a more realistic idea. So if you know that your provider is, you know, going to have you push on your back, even for the last, um, no, knowing ahead of time, okay, I can explore all these different positions, but when the baby crowns, I'm going to have to come onto the bed or onto my back and know, can I work with that or not? So it doesn't come like a complete curveball or, 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 I think it's I think it's important, and even if you ha do have to come onto your back, I think knowing how to work in that position mm -hmm. um, is important. So there are some tools and tips to be able to, you know, still stay connected uh, with your with your own body. Even but yeah, if having knowing your expectation where you get, when you're going in, I think also um, lessens the fear, which we've talked about. If someone's feeling pushed and shamed and dishonored, um, then that's not going to help their body open up. So no, that's not going to help their all. hormones. Yeah. So let's shift into one of my favorite topics, okay. <laughs> the pelvic floor. Um, okay. I'm such, I'm such a geek about this. I can't, I think I've done like four podcasts on the pelvic floor and I actually awesome. have, um, next week I'm, uh, having a podcast with Lindsay Vestal and Solange, um, because awesome. I'm, I'm such a geek on this. So, all right, we're going to talk a little bit about 
the role of the bony pelvis and the soft tissue and the pelvic floor and the pelvic ligaments and how that plays a role and how labor unfolds. And again, I'm, we don't have to go super, super in detail because I do have all those past, those past podcasts and those are more um, PTs or OTs. So just more in how as a doula, you and a child with educator, you involve this in preparation. Yeah, I think I think it's important um, in general for just pelvic health is to be able to get to know our own pelvises and our own pelvic floors because pelvic health is a lifetime investment. I, you know, it's important for labor and birth, but also as we age to really get to know about our pelvises and and how it affects our pelvic floor and how our lifestyle and our posture and our thoughts affect all of this. So I think I think um, it's important to to get to know our pelvises and to learn about our pelvises and to learn you know how, you know the bones of our pelvises so that we know that there are four bones that make up the pelvis. Okay, I just got to take. I just got to stop. This is hilarious. So this is first of all, as a podcast, no one else is seeing this, but I'm I getting t- a chuckle out of that you have a pelvis in front of you. So uh, <laughs> listeners, just visualize. Chantal holding a bony, bony pelvis. It makes me want to go get mine too, so we can explore together. Yes, let's get your pelvis. I got so excited. This is I'm so this excited. Is, these are the, my most favorite bones in the body. Yeah, I mean, just it's just a beautiful shape. You know, when it I really look is. at the shape of the pelvis, yeah, it's amazing and how it works and just the function of the pelvis that it connects our spine to our legs. Right, just understanding that and these two large bones, these ilium bones and knowing, you know, we have the iliac crests on the top and to find out in our own bodies, feel where our iliac crests are and then feel where our sit bones are so that we know the height of our own pelvis, right? And then to kind of feel in our own pelvis as if we take our hands to the anterior superior iliac spines and bring it forward towards the pubic symphysis. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> to feel where they meet, right, at the pubic symphysis. And then we take our hands all the way towards uh, the back to find to find our sacrum, that's another bone, the small of our back. And then where you place your middle finger actually is like the base of the coccyx. Um, so to explore that. And if you put one hand right on the iliac crest and one hand on your sit bone, just feeling that that height and that width is is amazing. And what I always do in my classes is I have my students, you know, feel their sit bones, right? You feel, you sit on your sit bones and you notice if you sit back of your sit bones, uh, what happens. And when you sit forward of your sit bones, and then if you were to open your knees wide, like almost like a plie, notice how those sit bones come together. You can keep your hands under your sit bones when you do that. Or if you internally rotate your legs, like as if you were going to do an they internal rotation, <laughs> they widen. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> right? And then if we bring our spine forward, notice what happens to our tailbone. Or mm-hmm. if we sit back and we sit on our tailbone, for example, what happens there? And so I encourage um, my students and my clients to become aware of of our posture when you're sitting, when you're standing, um, and often, you know, with all my uh, all my visits are in-home visits, so it's a great, for example, pinhole view into their lives, and I'll notice, okay, they're sitting cross-legged, right? And I'll just point that out to them. Oh, yeah, I always sit with my right leg over my left leg, and so if I'm sitting with my right leg over my left leg, I'm kind of asymmetrically pulling that right pelvic floor into a little bit of a torque, or how we're standing, you know, and I think in your, your yoga classes, I'm sure you bring that up if you're kind of like pushing forward into mm-hmm. the posterior part of the perineum. So just understanding um, also how um, when, we, when we lean back, right, how the pelvis can counter mutate, and then when we come forward, how it can mutate, and then getting to know the, the joints in the pelvis, right, the pubic symphysis, it's made up of soft cartilage tissue and at the sacral iliac joints, which allow for the counter-nutation and the nutation. And then right at the little coccyx, there's a little, <laughs> yeah, little tailbone, there's a little uh, joint there, which 
is, um, well, depending on how many falls you've had in your life, there's some movement there or not. So actually, a lot of my intake and explorations are, you know, with my clients ahead of time are, you know, tell me, tell me about the sport you did as a child. Tell me about what you did in college. Tell me. And then often it'll come up, yes, I, I horse rode and I fell a few times or I, I you know, I skate and I fell as a kid or, you know, I fell downstairs a lot as a child. <laughs> and if I'm hearing that, I'm sending them to a PT. You oh, know? definitely. <laughs> I, I kind of do that. And just across the board, I think there's no harm in anyone, especially if they're telling me they're having chronic SI pain, sacroiliac pain or pubis pain let's go to a pelvic floor PT or um, I'm personally very fond of Randy Jaffe doing some Webster and just, there's no harm in creating balance and taking being proactive and really digging deeper than we can in yoga or even in this exploration of our pelvis. I just think that that's just setting oneself up for as best as possible situation. Absolutely. No, I, I totally agree. Um, but then also when we explore the pelvis, if we look at the pelvis, so when we get to know in pelvis, just look at the pelvis, especially for birth and notice that it's wider at the top, mm-hmm. right? And at, if you look at the first brim that the baby has to come through, the first opening, that's wider from side to side and narrower than front to back. And when you look at the shape of the baby's head, it's wider from forehead <laughs> to the back of the head and narrower from ear to ear. So, you know, keeping that in mind where at the end of your pregnancy, right, as the uterus starts beginning to descend and as the baby comes down towards the pelvis, generally at around, you know, 38 weeks, we can be aware of this, encouraging the baby to be able to come in to the pelvis into the most optimal way, right? So if we can start thinking about that before we go into labor is ideal. And then thinking about the the trajectory, the path that the baby has to go through to come down into the pelvis through and out, and that it's not a straight path, it's a curved path, because when you look at the pelvis, it's curved, uh, and it's bony, it's curved inside, and it is wider at the top, but when you get to the middle of the pelvis, the narrowest part, by the ischial spines, it's the baby has to be able to navigate that part, and as it comes lower, it will begin to rotate, ideally to face the mum's back, um, where it becomes wider from front to back and narrower from side to side. And so to think about the positions that create a little bit more space in the middle of the pelvis. What's interesting and I think exciting to know is that uh, the deep muscles of the pelvic floor attach right here. And, And it's a lot deeper than we imagine it to be. We often think they're very external. And the role of of a supple, toned pelvis is going to help with those baby's earlier rotations as it comes down and in Mm -hmm. contact with the pelvic floor. So if it's balanced and toned and supple and not too tight, it will also help the baby be able to rotate, ideally to face the mom's back. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. And then... Quick question. So when you're dealing and you're doing your intake, so say you have someone that's been like, all right, I've been a marathon runner. I've been a cyclist. And you're suspecting, you're like, there's probably a lot of lift and tone in that pelvic floor and probably the psoas. Is that also when you suggest that they do some body work to help balance and relax things and release things? Yes. I'm a big advocate. One, to do, to be self-motivated and, and, and self-proactive, to be, to be start including uh, mobility exercise and release work. But I'm a big advocate for, you know, myofascial release, like with massage therapists or even some physical therapists will do a lot of myofascial release before they will look at the pelvis and to get an assessment of what's really, because then you have a baseline of what mm-hmm. you need to work on. I think it's a great idea idea or yes a chiropractor or acupuncture or maya massage or um an osteopathic work i think is amazing i think there's lots of 
awareness now for mobility, you know, that one can go to different classes, but also to learn in one's body. And I would say, yes, like in the second trimester, I'm encouraging most moms to, you know, to get strong, to be able to endure labor. But by the time they're in the third trimester, if they haven't already to really start releasing, doing a lot more release work. And with with not only the pelvic floor, I think it's important when you teach pelvic floor contractions, it's not just the tone and the lift, it's the release is just as important, if not more important. More important, important for some. Yeah. 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 So can you talk a little bit about the role if you do hear someone's likely um, very hyper, hypertonic engaged or you see in their body, you're like, you know, always crossing the same leg or they're, they're talking about like, I'm always feeling right as I pain. So we're starting to figure out there's probably some imbalance. Mm-hmm. What role would that play that you've seen as a doula and childbirth educator in the baby's rotation? Well, sometimes it can hold up the baby's rotation or it, it, it can affect the way that the head comes down, right? Ideally, we want the narrowest part of the head, the crown of the head to be able to come down and lead through the pelvic floor, through the pelvis and through the pelvic floor. But if it's tighter on one side, and not on the other, that could be a factor. Um, but I think for everybody, once I'm seeing that or once I take an intake, I'm already encouraging during the pregnancy to start doing a lot of, you know, psoas stretches or piriformis stretches or, you know, all those stretches that actually connect up into the pelvic floor. And um, I, you know, I get, I have all my clients actually get one of these half domes and have them you know, have it at their computer when they stand and work at the computer from their, on their phones, Can you know, to, to be able to be on a half dome stretching the backs of their calves um, on a daily basis. Um, I think stretching the hamstrings on a daily basis is important. I love foam rolling, but sometimes that's hard to do when you're pregnant. So I encourage all my clients. Yeah, I just think to back to being, I was still always going to the gym and I have a foam roller at home. And I just remember being at the gym, like 39 weeks pregnant. You can't get that. And I mean, I'm luckily pretty flexible. And so, but I'm a small person. I had a huge belly and I was like contorting myself over the foam roller and people just looked at me like I was a crazy person, but it makes a difference. It does make a difference. But if you can't get down, there's a, there's a little massage tool called a stick. It's like, and you can, you know, I have my clients just do a few minutes, you know, on the quadriceps, on the inner thighs, on the glutes, on the IT bands. All um, the important areas. Yeah. All the, all the <laughs> and important- usually slightly painful. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, it shouldn't be so so painful because then the muscle tightens up. But initially, it can be. Those are the areas where you want to be able to just sit and hold and breathe yeah, and, rinse. and surrender. <laughs> and so, and so this is surrender. good though, because this is giving people some tools about we want again a balanced pelvis for a more functional birth. So these are really functional tips to walk away with, thinking, okay, if someone's listening. As I'm a pregnant person. I clearly want my pelvis balanced. So now we've got some tips. We've got psoas stretches. We've got piriformis. Um, I love that stick you had so you can massage. If you can't haul your body over a foam roller, you've got the stick um, in all the different modalities. So I love that we're giving people stuff to walk away with. This is really important. All right, I'm going to keep plowing forward. So I want to talk a little bit um, about let's, uh, if someone knows that they want to take an epidural, how can they still utilize their body and help keep balance in the pelvis to help the baby descend and align well? Because often, you know, we're talking about, okay, we got to move a little this way. We got to move a little that way, help the rotation. But often when someone has an epidural there, they can only usually just go from side to side. So what tools, um, can someone use? And also because pushing is going to be different. They're not going to have that biofeedback of, um, you know, the, the fetal ejection reflex. So there's, there's a lot that does change. So, and, mm-hmm. and we know the statistics and as a, you know, as a doula, you've seen them, the epidural rate's really high. So what tools can we give someone if they know they're going to have an epidural to still, still align with having the best birth they can? Yeah, absolutely. Um, ideally, though, in the, again, in the first stage of labor, they're, even with an epidural, they're in positions that are encouraging the baby to be in a more optimal position. And I'm a big fan of the peanut ball. And in fact, I created a little printout that I will give to your students at my workshops, um, just that they can take with them to birth on different positions to do with a with a peanut ball. So mm-hmm. um, that if someone knows that they're going to get an epidural, I definitely have them get one that's 
a good size for them to take with because then even if you are in uh, positions that are on your side and that you're moving from side to side most of the time or somewhat sitting, you can still keep the pelvis open in different ways. Um, but you can still support the body with a lot of pillows. Um, I do love the sideline position with almost there's like a tea table that we often use in the hospitals that you can kind of wheel up next to the bed and lock it and you can adjust the height. So if the mom's on her side, she can bring her up, like for example, on her left side, completely on her left side, she can bring her right leg up and over and place it on that little tray table. Mm -hmm. That's a great way to feel supported. Or sometimes there's that um, little leg rest that you can open up over the bed and have the mom rest there um, to be able to keep the pelvis open, either for the in, a, in, in terms of like a counter-nutation to help the baby come into the pelvis or if the baby, if it's later on in the labor where you want the baby to come more down and out of the pelvis. So you can work with um, props in that way. Um, but some people may yeah. not have a doula that's going to rem- that will in- invite that memory of it. Um, so this is something Oops, we should I'm really... So oh, so, oh, sorry. So, so some people, yeah. like as a doula, we can go in and, and have this in our back pocket as a trick. So this is, we're going to, I'm going to guess we'll encourage the person to think about this well ahead of time. You know, think about get your peanut ball. Yes. When you get in your room, look for that little tray table, have the partner know what to do because they may get there and be like, what was that I was supposed to do? How, what do I do now? So this is something they should really plan ahead of time. Well, I think to go back to thinking about the baby, that mom-baby dyad. So Mm -hmm. when we're in labor, even with an epidural, how can we support the baby? What does the baby need? What does the baby need us to do to help it facilitate those intrinsic reflexes that the baby needs to go through to come into the pelvis, through the pelvis, and out of the pelvis? So even if we can't feel it in ourselves, if we can think, okay, yeah, I remember the baby it needs to come down through this shape and um, it has to be able to kind of fit through in the most optimal way. So how can I support that? So let me keep in mind and be mindful about keeping my pelvis open or supporting that. And I mean, every time if they, if they are being managed with an epidural, they are getting checked, you know, every, I don't know, four to six hours or so, but they can often have someone palpate and maybe get a sense of, you know, where's the baby at or, um, to get a sense of of where the baby's at to be able to support that. But even not, I think changing positions is important. And there's a lot that you can do um, with an epidural. You could be in, you know, an upright seated position in a throne. You could certainly be more semi-reclined. You could be up and over on either side. Um, so to keep, I think to keep in mind also what the baby needs, we can help support that. Sometimes just kind of, takes the pressure, you know, off in terms of forcing anything, but just kind of tuning into, okay, I know the baby has to come through this trajectory. What can I do to support that? I love that. that. I absolutely do love that because I don't think that we often think of the pathway of the baby. And if someone, you know, if they don't have a duel with them and they're trying to manage this on their own to step back and especially if they're Medicaid, because then they're often more comfortable to think, okay, here I am. I'm on my side. I've been here for a while. Is the baby kind of sitting here? Okay, I need to shift here. I like that. Think about the baby's journey. I think that really makes a big difference. Yeah, just keeping that in mind. But then when it comes to to actually pushing in second stage, I mean, again, if if the baby is really up, um, high up to wait until the baby, there's something we call labor down with an epidural. I think that's great if you are supported and encouraged to do that until, again, you see a little bit of hair or you see some part of the baby's head or you feel in more. Um, unless, of course, there's more of an urgency to to um, have the baby sooner than later. But then to start thinking about it, I've had you know, uh, uh, students come to my workshops, you know, they've already had a baby and they said, I couldn't feel anything. I had an after I could not feel a thing. And so, so then I say, well, then we have to use our imagination. Like let's visualize the direction that the baby has to go through so that you think it before you feel that. And so if you are in a position that you know that the baby has to kind of come down and kind of almost like a J, then you want to take your your energy and kind of drive the baby downwards and then up. So you're kind of 
thinking about that. And generally, as the baby comes lower, much lower and kind of comes onto the perineum, then they will feel more sensation. But also they can put their own hands on their uterus and go, oh, yeah, okay, I am having a contraction. Not necessarily have to wait for someone to tell tell them, yeah. But um, there are other ways as well. Like I think you can um, also take, you know, you can take a strap or a towel and use the bar and do that pull strap mm-hmm. while you're in a semi-reclining position uh, with an epidural. So you can kind of use your upper body and relax the lower body to be able to do that. And you can do that on your side too, um, depending on on, uh, on on where you're giving birth. Sometimes with an epidural, they only want you to be, you know, semi-reclined or side-lie. But there are some institutions where you can kind of come into other positions even with an epidural. So you can explore that and with some help get into those other positions as well. This is great information. I think I think you're giving people a lot of tools of what to do. And I like, can you um, back up and just explain laboring down for someone that's like, oh, I've heard that that term, but what does that mean? Yes. So, so remember when I mentioned that when it comes to second stage, there are different phases. There's like the latent phase and then there's a more participatory phase. And that includes the crowning, like right at the head, right at the end. So especially for an epidural or for someone who's not feeling a strong urge to push, to be able to rest and kind of get yourself together um, and kind of build your energy for when you start feeling more of an urge to ideally wait. And that's different in different uh, people and also the comfort level of the the provider and the yes. hospital. But if you're allowed to wait, whether it's a half an hour or one to two hours or for the baby to really be able to descend and finish rotating and coming into a good position, or if the baby isn't to be in positions during that time to support the baby to come into more optimal positions. So that will ideally bring the baby down more to Uh, a place where, yes, we're seeing more baby or the contractions are building up that you can work with those contractions or the mom is beginning to feel more urge to work with her own body. So especially with an epidural, to be pushing when you're not feeling anything is just going to exhaust the mom, put unnecessarily stress either in the face or forward into the abdomen or down into the pelvic floor. Um, and it's and also, also going to stress, stress them out. the baby. Yeah, stress, well, the, stress the mom and the baby. Because if the person's pushing with the baby still in a higher station, a plus station, and if that hospital's pr- or the care provider's pretty strict with, okay, you have three hours to push, we could be wasting valuable time. And could be wasting time and also and energy. Out of time. <laughs> and that often, when you start too soon, then often you could end up with an instrumental delivery. Yeah, like well, you may not have needed to just because you didn't give that waiting. baby time. Yeah, waiting. Yes. Waiting is, yeah. A, is a very important thing, listeners. Waiting. Waiting is a hard place to be. I mean, I think there's, as I mentioned, there's a lot of anxiety all around <laughs> with second stage. Sometimes there's this sense of urgency when the baby is already, you know, coming down and starting moving into coming to the birth canal to have the baby sooner than later. Yeah. Um, because, um, oh, it's just a policy. And, and, and those are, they are really, really are general. Some, some policies are, if you don't, if you don't see change within a couple of hours, you know, they really want to intervene or sometimes you get three or four hours. But once you start pushing, usually the cl- the clock is on. So mm-hmm. rather to wait to formally start pushing until the baby's down. But sorry, with, with the epidural, I think to think of the direction. So I, I, and to kind of learn ahead of time, like which muscles to engage and which ones to release, because if you're not automatically feeling them to kind of think about it so that you are really only engaging your diaphragm and upper abdominals, right? And uh, to really be able to relax the bowl of the pelvis, the pelvic floor and the lower legs, I think is essential. Mm -hmm. And to be able to take that energy, if you're not taking it down, it's going up into your face or forward into the abdomen. So Sometimes just really understanding the core and the breath and how it works together and how that kind of system works. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't feel it, you can think it until you feel it. And I think that helps. 
And that's why we do, and I'm sure you teach this in your classes, we do a lot of transverse abdominal work in prenatal, just so they know where those muscles are, they know how they work. So if they don't have the sensation, they still have the muscle association and relationship. So they yes. may not feel it, but they're like, oh, I remember this. I remember I exhale and, and my abdominals tone in. Now I can use that to push. So yeah, I've had students be like, so is this what I'm going to do when I'm pushing? I'm like, indeed. <laughs> indeed. You may not feel it, but indeed. Oh, wonderful. So as we start to wrap up, I just love this. I love this conversation. Um, what final tip or advice do you have for new and expectant parents? It doesn't even have to be in the pushing power world that you're living in. It could be anything from your 16 plus years of supporting the birthing person and family. It's pretty broad. Yeah. <laughs> it's very broad. Um, I just, there, there's, there's a few. I just want to add one oh, other sure. thing when it comes to the breath work for the release is, oh, sure. you know, a functional breath is when we inhale to expand, right? And then exhale is a gentle lift, right? As we engage. But when it comes to pushing, we want to be able to inhale to expand the pelvic floor, keep that expansion and kind of release down. So there's a little bit of a puff down, mm-hmm. um, that you go in with it. So it's a little bit of the opposite direction of a functional breath. And just to keep that in mind, because sometimes I feel like um, my students get confused. What do you mean? I've just learned how to do a functional breath. Now you're telling me to go the other way. Yes. For, for the birth and then, you know, early postpartum, we're coming back. To, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. So as I, as I mentioned, you know, I, 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 Really think when we come when it comes to pregnancy and birth, um, and just life that that again that public health it's it's a lifelong commitment and and to pay attention to it and to give it some love and respect and in terms of the way we eat and to eat slowly and good eat good nourishing food and the idea to introduce pleasure also into our lives. I think that's important when it comes to, when it comes to birth, like what gives you pleasure? What do you enjoy? Um, You know, to be able to give yourself that, you know, if not an hour a day, 10 minutes a day (laughs) of just time for yourself to develop like a self-care ritual, if you will, or to start incorporating a mindfulness practice, and it doesn't have to be hours a day, but just where we can either find those rituals and rhythms with either a breath meditation or a meditation um, in movement or where we can really tune into our bodies and calm our nervous system and um, to be able to find that balance in our lives, you know, mentally, emotionally, and physically, I think can really help. Um, I also wanted to say that it, I, I, I do like to let uh, pregnant expecting families know that I think there's a lot of, it's valuable to invest in the preparation of childbirth and postpartum. And I think that self-awareness, both body awareness and mindful awareness can really transform the nature of the experience. And a couple more things. Really, the reminder is the only muscles to tighten during pushing are the diaphragm and the abdominal muscles are not the legs or the buttocks or the pelvic floor. Or your face or your jaw <laughs> or your shoulders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then also to wrap up, it's important to keep the big picture in mind. You know, no matter which way your baby comes, it's about your personal experience and the birth of your baby. Mm-hmm. And... um you know, to, to keep that, to keep that in mind, I, I think, I think that if we feel supported and listened to and heard and that we were proactive in our choices, I think that eases sometimes the, you know, sometimes, you know, life doesn't always give us what I, we want. And sometimes there are disappointments, but at the end of the day to be able to you know, set yourself up as best you can with, you know, a provider that you can communicate with and talk to and your team that can really support you and can offer you that, you know, safe, protected space where you can be who you are and be able to, you know, go through that process, I think is important. 
Very, very, very important. Oh, I love that. So where can people find your work? Well, um, so I think the best way is to go to my website, which is chantaltraub.com. And I do have like a page that will say workshops and events and an email address and a phone number, and they can reach me there. And in the New York City area, I'm teaching uh, workshops, you know, throughout the city. And at um, prenatal yoga center. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited. <laughs> Again, I will say slightly self-serving because I can never, come? well, I'm totally going to come, but um, you were always doing them out in Brooklyn. And now that I'm in New Jersey, I was like, there's no way. Cause I also am a horrible driver and terrified of driving. So I'll drive around my little town, but like to drive from New Jersey into Brooklyn, I'm like, well, that's never going to happen. So because I believe in what you do and I I really want to go to this. You're doing a workshop at PYC. So I'm so excited I'm about so that. Excited. Yes, me too. I'm, I'm thrilled coming up soon. Yay. Yay. Well, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom. This was such a joy. And I'll make sure that on the show notes, um, we will link to your website so people can find you. And you know, even within your workshops, you're still an active doula. So... Yes. If you're jiving on what Chantal's talking about, listeners, you're like, I need that person supporting me. I need that soothing voice supporting me. You can find her. Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Thank you, Deb. Bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.